the failure of drug war is glaringly obvious to judges, cops, wardens, prosecutors, and millions more now calling for decriminalization, legalization, the end of prohibition. Let us investigate the century of lies. Hello and welcome to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. On January 30th and 31st, a planning committee of the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine organized and conducted a two-day virtual public workshop entitled Harm Reduction Services for People Who Use Drugs, Exploring Data Collection, Evidence Gaps, and Research Needs. Bear in mind that 20 years ago, the very term harm reduction was considered taboo by the feds. So this is truly, this was a landmark event. Let's hear from one of the speakers. Ricky N. Blutenthal, Ph.D., is the Associate Dean for Social Justice and Vice Chair for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and a professor in the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences and the Institute for Prevention Research in the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California. So my exposure disclosures, I got funding as an investigator, co-investigator from a couple of different NIH entities. I also want to say that uh, back in the 90s, uh, before I had gray hair, I was a co-founder and helped run the Oakland uh, Students Exchange Program, had Casa Segura, and I was also a founding board member of what was then the Harm Reduction Coalition, what has now become the National Harm Reduction Coalition. Um, <clears throat> so when I talk today, uh, I, I'm going to bring uh, both those experiences and over uh, 30 years of uh, uh, activity in the space around harm reduction and trying to support dignity and well-being for people who use drugs. All right, I'm going to ask uh, three questions, uh, ask and answer, hopefully, three questions. So racial disparities and substance use-related harms, racial inequities and harm reduction services, and how do we achieve racial equity in harm reduction services? Um, you know, let me just make the point uh, that I think is an important one uh, that uh, certainly resonates with my own values is that, you know, equality is different than equity. Uh, and equity contemplates a, a world where people get what they need uh, to live dignified lives that have as much health and, and satisfaction in them as, as is possible. Uh, and so it's, a, it's an important aim and an important distinction to make. Um, that we're interested in how the outcomes change um, and not whether everyone had the same chance, for instance, to get HIV, right? Uh, we're interested in preventing everyone from getting HIV, just as an example. Um, so let me start with uh, what grounds me, which is uh, things are getting worse. Um, so when I came to this work in the early 90s, uh, you know, HIV really was the primary uh, preoccupation, as it should be. Um, and while people did die from overdoses, it was much uh, much less frequently. As we've all lived through, uh, you know, we've particularly since uh, uh, 2010, and it seems like escalating since 2015, we've had these uh, uh, waves of overdose deaths um, that are related to uh, opiate use and opiate use in combination, different kinds of opiates and then opiate use in combination with other substances. We've also managed to have a new hepatitis C epidemic. Um, so um, we now have this sort of two hump camel with uh, millennials um, having elevated risk for having hepatitis C. And we continue to be in a uh, a situation where bacterial infections are growing um, 
uh, in our hospital system. And a lot of this is, is related to uh, injection drug use. Um, <clears throat> you know, I had the good fortune of being uh, uh, involved with screen service programs. And, you know, by the time I left the work uh, directly uh, in the late 90s, you know, HIV was really coming down uh, for populations of people who inject drugs. And then in recent years, and again, beginning after 2015, we've seen these outbreaks of um, HIV happening, some in novel places like Northern Kentucky and the suburbs of uh, Boston, uh, and then in some traditional places like Philadelphia and Portland. Uh, and these all are happening at the intersection of homelessness um, and uh, drug use. Uh, for the most part, and sex work. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot more work to do than there was even in the early 90s. Um, and with, as is often the case in our country, the consequences of these uh, ailments fall more heavily on populations that have been historically and contemporarily disadvantaged. Uh, and uh, that means often uh, black people, uh, indigenous people, and other folks of color. And then these are just a few uh, snippets from data we have. The first one on the left uh, shows the disproportionate impact of, HI of um, HIV among people of color who inject drugs. So African-Americans represent 26% of the population of the group that have HIV, but are only 13% of the overall population. And then similarly for Hispanics, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's higher than it should be. Um, this hepatology communications uh, reports on hepatitis C by race uh, from uh, for about 20 years, um, and not Hispanic African-Americans are elevated risk um, for hepatitis C. And then for many years, uh, the drug overdose death crisis was falling more heavily on white folks. Uh, but in recent years, um, American Indians and African Americans have been disproportionately impacted. And this document summarizing data from the CDC by the Kaiser Family Foundation shows that change over time. So the darker blue is uh, January, September 2018. And then the light blue is 2019, and then the orange is 2020. And as you can see, American Indians uh, in, in 2019, the uh, rates, the deaths, overdose deaths per population exceeded or uh, exceeded that of whites. And then uh, for black folks, it happened in uh, 2020. You know, one of the take homes, um, uh, I think, from my uh, remarks today is mostly going to be, you know, in a weird way, we haven't actually looked all that carefully at harm reduction services in terms of um, process um, and uh, these questions about who uses programs. Uh, the literature is not full of published studies on this topic. Um, and uh, so there's actually a lot of things that we can learn by more carefully looking at these programs. And now that there are, you know, um, you know, hundreds, right? Uh, um, you know, over 400 programs. I think I heard someone say recently there were up to 700 programs in the country. There's a real opportunity to have a robust examination of both uh, who's using it, what the programs are providing, whether they're adhering to harm reduction principles, and then what are the outcomes. So one of the things that's really colored um, 
the rollout of needle exchange programs or certain service programs is it really have they really have been um uh sort of programs that exist within the context of political opportunity um and so these early papers by barbara tempelski you know make the point that if you look at the late 90s period uh, to early 2000 and sort of ask yourself like who's got who what are the areas that end up having needle exchange programs what you find is that the presence really, excuse me, has a lot to do uh, with the, with both the demographics of the areas that they're in, with places that have more college-educated people and more um, many of sex with men more likely have them, and then places where activists help start them. Um, and I and I do want to say that I, one of the one of the things that has always struck me about uh, my thirty over thirty year experience in this space. Is that you know the the results the programs that we have have come not out of you know someone looking at the data and saying holy cow we've got a really serious problem in this population and we ought to do something about it it really has come from the community and were it not for those early activists and act up uh, we would not be where we are today um, and it's important to keep that in mind because I think the as I'll show you a lot of the problems around implementing these programs and making them effective has to do with the political context in the country. Uh, so to delve into this a little bit, uh, the one on the, the figure on the left is a map, obviously, of the United States, continental United States and Hawaii and Alaska, showing uh, a needs assessment that the CDC offered to all the states. And essentially, the purple states are the states that need to have a certain service program. And the gray ones are ones that didn't want to have a determination. Um, and then this next one is a document, uh, a legislative summary of state laws uh, from 2022, um, looking at uh, who has legal permission to have strange service programs. And you'll see that uh, there are still many states where there's not explicit uh, or, or even implicit authorizations to have strange service programs. Although some of them do. So like a place like Wisconsin has had syringe service programs for 20, 30 years, um, or nearly, probably 25 years. So um, that doesn't mean the programs don't exist. But it does mean that there are some legal obstacles still. And, um, you know, I think it's important to note that some of the areas where this authorization hasn't happened are states are disproportionately African-American, uh, like Alabama, Mississippi, and South Carolina. Uh, or are Latina, like Texas. And so um, this sort of political infrastructure and obstinance uh, ends up creating a real health risk for minoritized populations in those states. Um, you know, as I am fond of saying, uh, you know, not every strength service program is the same. There, the, there are wide variations in uh, program requirements, uh, policy, dis dispensing policies, hours of operations, the capacity to reach and address people. And we haven't even really talked about the, the coverage issue, uh, which is a substantial one. Um, but there are, again, uh, obstacles to having the most effective uh, program models. Uh, and as you can see on the left, the states that are gray, uh, uh, <clears throat> sorry, the ones that are, um, are, are green, uh, have requirements about traceable syringes. So West Virginia, Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, the District of Columbia. Um, 
a lot of the gray ones on that one just don't have syringe service programs. And then the slide on the right is around distribution of syringes. Um, and as has been uh, now documented in probably half a dozen studies, you know, the preferred method of uh, providing syringe dispensing is needs-based distribution. Um, and uh, as you can see, uh, there are uh, still some states requiring one-for-one -one exchanges, um, which is not best practices. So there's, again, not this, we haven't talked about this much, but there's, there's a lot of work to do in this space uh, around optimizing the services. And we can optimize them in the context of racial equity, which is, again, we need to give people the things they need to be able to achieve wellness. Uh, and um, if we're not doing that, then we need to think hard about why we're not. Okay, and then uh, the the other, you know, arm reduction uh, approach obviously is medications for opiate use disorder. Um, there's been a lot of look at this uh, in recent years around who has access to buprenorphine, who has access to uh, to methadone. And generally, these studies, as the ones I've sort of highlighted here, indicate that access um, to programs um, is lower uh, for uh, minoritized populations, uh, particularly American Indians, which is the point of the one on the left, but also uh, African Americans uh, and Hispanics. Um, and you can see this is a meta-analysis looking at both ethnicity and gender. Uh, and you can see in general, if you look at the right, um, uh, the left of the left of the one, um, many studies indicating that uh, African-Americans have lower access to opiate use disorder treatment. Uh, <clears throat> similarly, some for Hispanics uh, and some for, um, sorry, uh, and some uh, some for American Indians. Listening to a presentation by Dr. Ricky Blutenthal. He's Associate Dean for Social Justice and Vice Chair for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and a professor in the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences and the Institute for Prevention Research in USC's Keck School of Medicine. We'll hear more in a moment. You're listening to Century of Lies. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. Now let's get back to that National Academy's workshop entitled Harm Reduction Services for People Who Use Drugs, Exploring Data Collection, Evidence Gaps, and Research Needs, and that presentation by Dr. Ricky Blutenthal, an Associate Dean and Professor at USC's Keck School of Medicine. As I pointed out again, there's not a lot to draw from in terms of who has access to naloxone. There are kind of two sets of studies. Uh, so there are a few, like, individual studies, uh, similar the one on the left is a study that... Uh, that uh, Alex Kral and I did in San Francisco and Los Angeles, uh, <clears throat> just looking at who was getting naloxone in those two cities and uh, if they were getting refills. Uh, and we found that African-Americans and Latinos were less likely to have gotten refills. Um, and then there's a little this more sophisticated look uh, by Nolan et al. Uh, that uh, Brandon Marshall and Bruce Schachman uh, led and they found some significant differences by race ethnicity in terms of access to, to naloxone. So, uh, I mean, my main take home just from these set of slides is that essentially, as long as we have these serious problems and as long as those serious problems disproportionately impact uh, um, minoritized population, 
if we're not making decisions about program models and locations and access to services based on need or harm, then we're allowing racial inequities to persist. So we really do need to, in some ways, seize the political high ground, which has been the case sort of for the over 30 years I've been paying attention to this, uh, to make the case that providing harm reduction services to people who need them is, is an, ultimately a racial equity question. Um, and if we want to make progress in the space, um, we need to be focused on providing programs to the people who need them in the places that they, uh, where they can access them. Um, and then I just like to make this point, you know, the political obstacles are substantial. You know, there's a book out um, called The Political Determinants of Health, which is worth reading um, and is an important um, component of understanding why both these problems have gotten worse over time, time and why they persist. Um, and I, this slide just points out that, you know, essentially anything that we might have done uh, to reduce the harms of HIV, hepatitis C, overdose deaths uh, among people who use drugs has been opposed politically, sometimes at the federal level and oftentimes in state and local levels. Um, and then the other thing I want to highlight um, before I talk about sort of a, a positive agenda moving forward is that there have been substantial erosion in the material conditions of people who use drugs in the United States of America over the last 30 years. Um, and so I know in my own studies uh, in Los Angeles and San Francisco and California and Denver, you know, we've seen substantial increases in the net, um, uh, amount of uh, percentage of people who are in the house and unsheltered. Uh, and needless to say, that represents its own profound uh, risk. Um, the the meta-analysis in Lancet uh, just makes the point that essentially being unhoused doubles your relative risk of getting HIV and hepatitis C uh, over the course of your life. Okay, so how can we achieve health equity and harm reduction services? So I just want to highlight these principles, nothing about us without us, that things be client-driven, non-punitive, non-judgmental, and practical. And for me, <clears throat> you know, I distill that into, you know, people need resources and relationships um, to be able to attain health. Um, and we should be working to enable that for them so that they can live uh, their best lives. And operationalizing that, um, means listening to the people with the problems. Uh, and so there's been, there'll be more panels on it after my talk. Uh, there are panels on it yesterday. Um, and I just like to make the point that the sort of image strategies that have come out of drug user organizers um, um, have been the ones that work, right? So, um, you know, uh, syringe service programs as a response to hepatitis C and HIV was not the idea of an academic. Naloxone distribution was not the idea of an academic, right? Uh, safer injection facilities were not the idea of academics. So um, we really need to look to the population for solutions to the problems that they face. Um, they're likely to be effective, um, practical, and also sustainable. You know, I've all, you know, in the 30 years I've been up to this work, you know, I've seen literally hundreds of, you know, very expensive, uh, sometimes individuals, sometimes uh, group interventions developed to address these topics. 
um, that often can't be used in, in community settings because they're too expensive and they aren't, aren't all that effective. So the answers can come from the community. Uh, and, uh, you know, as a researcher, it's my job to listen to them and then work with them to come up with the best way of demonstrating whether something happens to make a difference or not. So um, for the syringe service programs in particular, you know, we want to push uh, for more evidence-based policies, things like need-based distribution, naloxone distribution, and then identifying other essential services that make sense for people to be provided on a regular basis. Um, I do want to make a pitch for uh, pipe distribution. I know um, uh, I know that that's a little bit of a third rail now, uh, and that there have been federal requirements not to allow the purchase of pipes. Um, you know, look, people are telling us they want them. Um, you know, in the work I've done, we're working on a paper now uh, looking at the transition to fentanyl. Um, and we presented this at a conference, so I'll share it here. I mean, basically, you know, the transition to fentanyl may reduce some risk for things. So we, in, our, in the study we've conducted, we saw lower risk for lower odds of abscesses among people who had uh, begun smoking. Um, there are also pipes are a way to bring in more populations. Uh, so people who smoke methamphetamine, for instance, and to provide them with services they might need. Um, and they're not really getting touched by anyone uh, currently in the sort of health space. Uh, and then I think the other option is to prioritize access to certain service programs for populations at elevated risk. Um, you know, the CDC actually over the years has done a great job of this, and I, I think about that mostly in the, in, the, in the space of the whole infrastructure that was created around community planning for HIV. Um, the similar effort, as we heard yesterday, is happening with overdose. We can do the same things for high-risk minoritized populations, and we, and we should. Um, and we also need to look at uh, circumstances where people are, are not in just uh, urban areas. Um, so, you know, there's substantial numbers of um, uh, rural substance-using people who are both African-American and Latino. They have not been subject of much empirical research, uh, and I'm pretty certain their their needs for harm reduction services are quite high. You know, we need to facilitate and study uh, the adoption of harm reduction principles in other settings. Um, you know, there was a great uh, programs that SAMHSA did and probably still does around you know trying to provide HIV services in substance use settings and provide substance use services in HIV settings. Um, you know, we could do the same thing with strength service programs and harm reduction programs. And, you know, maybe it's time for something like the kind of full trials network for strength service programs, recognizing that there is now for the first time a harm reduction network uh, with, I think it is 10, 10 sites. So that's awesome. Uh, but we need more of that. Um, we also need to develop biomedical interventions and collaborations with, in collaboration with the people um, who would be using them. So, uh, you know, I've had the uh, uh, great joy of watching the development of really pro profoundly effective biomedical interventions for this population, things like HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis, treatments for hepatitis C, and of course, naloxone, which uh, can be very life-saving. Um, it would be great if we also extended that to things like community-based withdrawal management. 
<clears throat> opiate withdrawal is a is a substantial problem. Um, uh, it's probably the most common problem that people who use opiates have in terms of a sort of health complaint. Uh, and it's even high among meth methamphetamine users. In a study we did a couple of years ago, about 40 to 50% of methamphetamine users reported having regular um, withdrawal symptoms. So providing a biomedical solution for them um, will both help in terms of their immediate uh, well-being, but also probably will help reduce their risk from using meth, using opiates, uh, and can be a bridge to treatment. Um, the third thing is we really do need to reduce stigma and bias among healthcare providers. <laughs> um, I've been fortunate enough to work in a couple of small pilots looking at this. It's actually pretty easy to change people's uh, attitudes uh, around substance users, but you have to spend some focused attention on it. And we need to be doing this on a more widespread basis. Um, the issues of stigma, stigmatizing people who use drugs actually harms them. So it's not a thing. I know there are people who are like, oh, we don't want to destigmatize drugs because we don't want people to think it's okay to use them. And whatever the merits of that case, um, I think it's clear that the stigma that is associated with drug use ends up making people feel bad. And when people feel bad, they're less likely to seek help. And when they're treated poorly, they're less likely to remain in, remain in care. Uh, and there are lots of studies documenting that. So um, the sort of focused intention on improving how we treat people who use substances, I think, is warranted, <laughs> given the empirical record. So as I made the point earlier, we have these really structural issues that are social and political in origin, but there are great solutions. Um, so there's housing first, um, and there's just a little, you can hit that and learn more about that. There's treatment first, which is something Rachel Winogrand has been advocating in Michigan and has good results in terms of helping people uh, manage their drug use and then move on to uh, use other services to help them. I do like to highlight this TRIAS model that people, <clears throat> some people know about, um, but it's a, basically a terrific approach of sort of allocating um, a set amount of money uh, to a person with a mental health problem, uh, and then a caseworker <laughs> working with them in creative ways to sort of help them spend that money to improve their well-being. Uh, and it turns out when you give people resources, they uh, end up doing better. And that's why I put also the universal basic income. <laughs> Excuse me. You know, there are, there are experiments happening all over the country. We had a had one in Los Angeles that just completed. And for a very modest uh, monthly stipend, you end up getting pretty terrific outcomes, including improvements in housing um, and like eating regularly, um, which are important uh, health outcomes. So just to conclude, um, you know, we need to take seriously these sort of patient-centered approaches that are sort of the hallmark of harm reduction. Um, we need to more carefully examine the consequences of political barriers to well-being among people who use drugs. We need to continue to me measure the health costs of prohibition. I know people, you know, there's this debate going on in Oregon, other places in California, we have this around you know, fentanyl is a real problem and we want to increase the penalties for it. Um, and the truth is, not only is there no record of those penalties reducing the availability of these substances, but we now know 
that when, excuse me, you put people in jail, you're not helping them deal with their substance use disorder. So, <clears throat> you know, we need to stop doing the things that don't work. That was Ricky Blutenthal, Ph.D., Associate Dean for Social Justice and Vice Chair for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and a professor in the Department of Population and Public Health Sciences and the Institute for Prevention Research in the University of Southern California's Keck School of Medicine. He spoke January 31st at a National Academy's workshop entitled Harm Reduction Services for People Who Use Drugs, Exploring Data Collection, Evidence Gaps, and Research Needs. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. This has been Century of Lies. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Find this edition of Century along with an archive of past shows at the Drug Truth Network website, drugtruth.net. We'll be back in a week with 30 more minutes of news and information about drug policy and the failed war on drugs. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. For the Drug Truth Network, this is Doug McVeigh asking you to examine our policy of drug prohibition, the Century of Lies. Drug Truth Network programs archived at the James A. Baker III Institute for Public Policy.